0: If you've been with us recently, you know we've been going through a series that I've titled Essentials of a Thriving Church. Essentials of a Thriving Church. We've taken a little break from that as um, Pastor Josh was here with us last week for our Healthy Home Conference. But we get back to that this morning, the Essentials of a Healthy Church. And so to just remind you where we've been a little bit as a church through this study, you can remember what we've been looking at. We've seen that the thriving church, And some of the essentials of a thriving church include that the thriving church uncovers God's truth. Number one, the idea of studying the Bible thoroughly together. We look at God's word. We take uh, the truth from God's word, place it into our lives, and use it to guide our church. It uncovers God's truth. It cherishes God's good news. We talk specifically about the gospel and conversion and what that looks like. Um, It's not a one-time thing that happens, but it, it's something that happens at one point, but then changes the rest of your life moving forward. We move toward God. The gospel uh, is something we, uh, a church that is thriving has to revolve itself around. It cherishes God's good news. Thirdly, it, it, a thriving church intentionally commits to one another. Talk about unity. We talked about the, the importance of getting together as that church body group. It's not just the one-time service that we go to here or there. It's being a part of that Christian group that grows together. And we intentionally commit to one another. A thriving church also cares about sin. Cares about sin personally in their own walk and also in the church. And they take certain steps to make sure they take care of sin. They deal with it. They help people who are stuck in sin. The thriving church cares about sin. Pastor Dan then talked to us about how a thriving church desires to grow in Christ, in discipleship. And also how a thriving church tells others about Christ. It's not something we take to ourselves and just keep it. We want the message to go forward. We know that the people that are around us that don't have Christ in a relationship through him are dying and they're destined for an eternity in a place of destruction. We know that and because of that, we care for them. We want to witness to them, tell them about Jesus Christ. A thriving church tells others about Christ. That brings us to our final sermon on this, uh, this series. And the, the final sermon, titled, uh, is A Thriving Church That Leads by Example. A Thriving Church That Leads by Example. Well, what we're going to be talking about this morning is godly leadership. Godly leadership. Question as we get started for you, what happens without godly leadership? Well, there's a couple different ways that we can answer that question. Well, number one, one option that happens when there is not godly leadership is that nothing happens. Nothing happens. There's no one guiding or directing or helping to show where God wants us to go. And so a church becomes lethargic and just goes through the day-to-day, the week-to-week. We just Do the very bare minimum, but nobody is guiding us or leading us. Nothing happens. Now, in the scenarios that we're going to look at next, this seems to be the least detrimental, that nothing happens. But we know that's still not something that's good, right? If we just stay the same and we're not moving towards God in a God-glorifying way. Another way we can answer that, what happens when there is no godly leadership, number two is that chaos ensues. Chaos ensues. We're going to have different people bringing in different thoughts, different ideas about how to live, about how life should be lived, about how the church should function. And you know what? Without leadership that is trying to be driven by God's word, chaos is going to take place. Third thing, power struggles break out. People that are trying to make themselves more important and they take on leadership roles that are not designed for them and they try to have the power. And it's all about them being in a place of notoriety, power struggles ensue when there is not godly leadership. Fourth thing that happens, worldly strategies and teachings seep in. Worldly strategies and teachings. If you don't have someone who's pointing at God's word, evaluating what's going on in the church and outside culture with God's word, if you don't have that taking place, what's going to happen? Very shortly, churches will adopt whatever the world is teaching especially if what the world is teaching is against what God's Word is teaching, but nobody is keeping that accountable to God's Word, they're going to say, well, we can't go against what the world is saying because we're going to look bad to them. And we don't want people to look down on us, so we're just going to adopt whatever the world's theology, whatever the world's ideology is, and we're going to use that in the church. Unfortunately and sadly, we've seen that in many different churches. And they've gone away from God, closer to the world, and just... To, to satisfy everybody that is coming in, we as a church and a thriving church has the essential of wanting to keep god 's word first and foremost uh, right in front of us and having godly leadership that is driving that cause to follow after God. Last thing that happens is that sin starts to run rampant without godly leadership, sin starts to run rampant in and amongst us uh, Nobody that is willing to stand up for what's right and call sin, sin. That's part of it. We're scared that people are going to get mad or angry that we are saying a sin is a sin because God's word says that that thing is against his holiness and we have to stand up for what is against God's holiness. We have to be a church that does that. An essential church is a church that is being run and led by biblical leaders that are willing to do a lot of these things. And as those leaders uh, take uh, the responsibility and do the things they're called to do, it's going to help the church grow. And not just grow in numbers, grow in strength. That's the, that's the idea. We want to grow as a church that is committed to God, that loves God, that, that wants more of God. We don't do that by, by having weak leadership or ungodly leadership. And so today, um, we have to, as we think of essentials of a thriving church, this has to be one That we look for. And again, as I'd mentioned before in previous sermons, I want you to know some of this stuff so that as you go out, maybe you move away and you're looking for a church, or you're in the area and you're trying to decide what church is a good church. These are avenues and aspects for you to consider to say, you know, I got to evaluate these churches. Do they teach God's word? Do they have godly leadership? And that's the one that we focus on today godly leadership. The idea that we want to focus on today is a healthy, thriving church must be led by those who follow God passionately. A healthy, thriving church must be led by those who follow God passionately. And I really like how that's said in the, in the middle of there, must be led by those who follow. A thriving church must be led by those who follow. Doesn't that seem to be a little, uh, take a second for us to think about? They're leading but they're leading in a way that they are following the one that is in front of them. And the one that's in front of us, of course, is God and his message through his word and the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're leading others. They're saying, we know the right way to go because God's word has given us the right way to go. And I know you want to know that. Follow after us because we're trying to follow after God. A healthy, thriving church must be led by those who follow God passionately. Today, we want to look at three truths about leadership that we find in Scripture. And this is where we'll turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. <clears throat> and our first truth of the day is that leadership in the church is crucial. Leadership in the church is crucial. It's important. It is essential. We need to have godly leaders that are willing to step up and lead the church in a godly way. Ephesians four eleven tells us this, Paul is teaching, and he says, and he gave the apostles, he's talking about God through Jesus Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now these are leadership structures to help guide the church as it got started, right? We know the apostles and the prophets, they are a temporary role, that since there's not longer functioning like that today, He's given us evangelists, those who spread the gospel message. But then he has given us shepherds and teachers. And this idea of a shepherd is a pastor, bishop, elder. All of those terms being synonymous throughout Scripture. He's given us shepherds and teachers. Now, look at verse 12. Here's what it tells us that he gave us these specific people to do. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These people, shepherds, pastors, leaders, spiritual leaders in your own life, God wants to use them to challenge you, to grow you, to help bring you along in His Word, till we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God. Faith and knowledge of the Son of God, that's what leaders do. leaders, godly leaders in the church, they're trying to help you and your Christian walk become more aware and conscious of God and how to live out the gospel message. We know what the gospel message is. We've talked about it thoroughly. It's the idea that we understand we are sinners. God helps bring us to that point that we are sinners. And with that sin that has been passed on to us from Adam and Eve to all of humanity, there's enmity between us and God. There's a break in relationship. And because of that break in relationship, when we pass away, when we die, we cannot go to be with God, our Heavenly Father, without dealing with that sin and that break in relationship. Many people try to do different things to to deal with that break in relationship. They try to go to church enough and say, if I just tip the scale in my favor and do enough good things so that my bad things are outweighed, hopefully when I get to heaven, God will look at me and say, well, you know, you didn't reach my holiness, but you tried hard enough. And they try to go to church enough. They try to give enough money. They try to be a good enough person. All these things to try to earn their salvation, earn their holiness. But what does Scripture tell us? The Bible tells us that all of our good deeds, our good works, are like filthy rags to God. I mean, our little bit of trying to be holy compared to God's holiness, his complete separation from sin, there's no way that those two can come together without something outside of ourselves being part of that solution. And God knew it. God knew it. So that when he was in heaven, he looked down at us and he said, I love them. I created them in my image, but I know that there's no way they can come to be with me unless I do something. I reach out to save them. And because I love them so much, they were created in my image, I am going to provide a way of salvation for them. And that way of salvation is, I'm going to send my son, my only precious son, the one that I love I'm going to send him to take on humanity, become part of the human race, and go to the cross. And his purpose in going to the cross was not to show how good he was, but it was to take on all of our sins on the cross. He walked to the cross. He came. He took on humanity. He lived the perfect life, the sinless life. He's the only one that is good enough to be the sacrifice that we needed. He went to the cross, and as he died on the cross, he held himself there. And it wasn't the Roman soldiers that really murdered him, even though practically, we know that that's what happened. And we're going to, we're going to uh, be celebrating that in just two weeks. But he himself held himself on the cross until he died and paid for the sins of the world. He did it by taking on God's wrath. And in that taking on God's wrath, he provided this transfer that we gave him our sins. And if we trust in his work on the cross and his work on the cross alone through faith, that he then transfers his holiness and his righteousness to us. And that is such a blessing for us to remember. The gospel, we remember that. And as leaders in the church, that's what we have to focus on. That's what we have to help people um, grow in. The understanding of that and the outworking of that message. That now we are believers in Jesus Christ, but what does it look like to move towards him? What does it look like to evangelize? If we don't have people that are helping us and showing us that direction, We're lost at times, turning to all kinds of different things. And they're not giving us their own thoughts and ideas. They're pointing us back to Scripture. They're pointing us back to what God's Word says. And they're saying, mature Christians, as we grow, we want to look like this because that's what Jesus looked like. Leadership in the church is doing that. Until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's turn over to one more passage, Acts 20. Acts twenty twenty-eight. <clears throat> Acts twenty twenty-eight it says this. Paul's speaking, and he's talking to the elders at Ephesus, the pastors who are at Ephesus there. And he says to them, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Spiritual leaders, first of all, then, in that verse, are to be overseers. They're supposed to be taking account of who is among them, who God has placed them over. He's supposed to be praying for them, seeking them out to help them when they have need. They're overseers, right? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Look at verse 29 as we continue. What does he tell them? He says, admonish those who are around you. Remember how I did that with you? That's what Paul said. He says, I was with you. I was among you. I admonished you. I taught you. I came alongside of you. And he says, now I commend you to the word of God and to his grace. He's not leaving them by themselves. He's saying, I've taught you what God's word says. Use what God's word says. And as wolves come in among you, use God's word to guide you in the right direction to put off the sheep, to throw them out of the way and say, no, we're not going to lead a church this way. We're going to follow God's word, God's direction. And even that idea of wolves coming in among sheep is that not that just from the outside, he says that from among you, inside of you. Some of those who you know, who you love, who you trust, they're at times going to get tempted to look the wrong direction, turn the wrong way. Don't let even the ones that you love next to you turn away from God's specific word, telling us what to do. I commend you to God into his word, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. Paul was writing this very early in the first century. And we can look at church history from then until now, and multiple different sects have turned away from Christianity. One that I was reminded of recently was the Church of Mormonism. And we watched a documentary on Warren Jeffs I remembered his name. I was talking to Pastor Dan about this. Uh, Warren Jeffs is the leader of the FLDS Church, the, the Church of Mormon, the fundamentalist group. And some of the things that he taught his followers is that he is a prophet of God, the one prophet of God, that outside of God's word, he brought new prophecy, and they had to listen and obey him. And his followers followed him to the very end. He's not dead, but right as of right now, he has been placed in prison, mainly because of what he has taught about a polygamous lifestyle. The idea that the major theme of the, the walk of a believer is to gain many, many wives. And the followers under him believed this so much that they would have children, and the girls of the children would grow up, and at 13 to 15 years old, they would bring them to this Warren Jeffs and say, here, these are for you to disperse to those who you think need wives, multiple wives. And the sad thing was that these little girls' lives, they were ruined. I mean, 13 to 15 years old, he was giving them to 30 to 50 to 60-year-old men to have as wives. Now, do you think that's something that is turning away from God's word? I mean, yes, we've got to be clear and understanding of what Scripture says so that we can weed out what is right And what is wrong? And we can figure out the difference and then guide and lead people in the right direction. Here's the deal. There is a need for godly leadership. Leadership in the church. And there is a need for the church to have direction. We all know what this looks like. We need someone to guide and direct, right? Think about it. Think about the last time that you went out on a date with your wife And you said, oh, this will be great. Someone's watching the kids. We're finally going to get out. You get in the car to drive. Maybe you're even driving out, and you say, where do you want to go to eat? And of course, your wife or your husband says, well, I don't care. Just pick a place. And so you automatically think, okay, well, what's some good stuff to me? I pick one place. How about this? Well, not that place. Let's not go there. No, okay, okay. Well, what's the next place? Well, I don't want to go there. Well, you just said that you didn't want, didn't care. Well, Okay, obviously somebody has to lead in a decision, right, as to where you're going to go. We know that's the case. And it's the same with the church. We don't come to the church and lift our hands up. God has given us specific uh, instruction in this matter. God has given shepherds and pastors to come and give guidance and leadership and biblical instruction to help the church go in a direction towards God. Now, each church is going to do that as they evaluate their congregation and they they try to figure out how I can minister to them, what direction that we go in. But God has given that role for a pastor to lead in those areas. There is a need for godly leadership. There's also a need for godly men to lead. God says that it's given to, this specific role as pastor and leader uh, in the church is given in a very specific way to men. Men are to stand up, and say, hey, I'm going to lead my family well. I'm going to, in a specific way in the church, step into roles of leadership that God has designed for us. There's a need for godly men. There is a need for multiple spiritually-minded men to lead. This is not a dictatorship. It's not Pastor Jim that's up here and everything that he says goes, and if you get out of line, I'm going to squash you. That's not how it goes. There is a need for multiple godly men to help in this leadership structure, you know, we can look in the New Testament. One of the phrases and terms that's used multiple times is elder, and it's always used in the plural. And this is a, a, a term that is used synonymous with pastor. There should be multiple spiritually minded men that together are keeping each other accountable and helping to guide and direct the church. There is a need for multiple spiritual men. There is also a need for toughness in leadership, isn't there? There's a need for toughness. We have to have a tough skin at times. I can remember in a previous ministry, um, there was one man who became a deacon at the church that I was working at. And he became a deacon after a process of um, teaching him, talking with him, asking if he was willing to be a deacon, giving him some of the instructions of what, what that would include. And he joyfully wanted to become a deacon. And it was only a few months after he became a deacon That a a sin situation with a different person in the church uh, happened, took place. To the point where we had, as a leadership, we, we had two individuals go to this person and talk to him about the sin, call him to repent. Not in a mean way, but in a loving way, because we want someone not to stay in their sin, but to really repent of their sin and come and be back with us. While this individual, instead of repenting, decided, I don't care, I'm not doing that. Well, those two deacons, they came back to the group and they said, here's the situation. Here's where we're at. And so at that point, the leadership said, okay, next thing we're going to do is we're going to write a letter that calls this person to repent. And as we write that letter, we're all going to sign it because we want them to know that it's not just one of us that has this understanding of sin. It's our group. And it's not in a mean way, but again, it's showing them. It's, we're doing what Scripture tells us in Matthew 18, that You widen the circle a little bit so that you can help the person, individual, see the severity of sin. And so as we did that, we signed the letter, we sent it out. Now, let's go back to this one individual that became a deacon just a few months earlier. As that letter went out, he was okay with it, he signed it. But as it went out, some of his family members and extended family members started to have some problems with this letter going out. So much so, they came and talked to this one individual and said, I don't think you should be doing this. And, you know, that's you shouldn't be signing letters like that. Well, it only took about a week or so. He came into my office with a resignation letter and said, yeah, this is just, it's, it's not the time for me to, to be doing this. And he wanted to resign. Now, what, what's happening in that situation? He was on board with the spiritually-minded men that were trying to lead and direct in a very helpful way, a loving way. But when he saw the toughness of it and that some people aren't always happy with the decision-making that we're doing in a godly way, it caused them to say, that, that's not for me right now. Now, what does that point to? It points to this idea that we need some toughness in leadership. When we know what's right, we're trying to pray through decisions, and we're trying to ask God to guide us in direction, and we come to that decision of, this is right for us to do as a church, as a leadership. Well, we, we count on God, we trust in God, And even if other people outside of us are going to say that's not the right decision, we are not trying to please everybody. We are trying to please God first and foremost. We need godly leaders that have that mindset, that are tough, willing to stand up for what's right and what God teaches us in his word. A healthy, thriving church must be led by those who follow God passionately. First thing is is that we need leadership in the church, and it is a crucial aspect of the church. You need godly leadership. That's the second uh, truth that we come to today. Godly character in leaders is crucial. Godly character in leaders is crucial. Now imagine for, with me for a minute that you turned 18, and in your uh, 18-year-old mind, you think to yourself, well, I want to do something important with my life. I want it to make, have purpose behind it, and I want to learn from someone who is a very effective leader. And with that mindset, maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm going to join the military. They're going to teach me how to follow people and then how to lead people. So at 18, you join the military, and your mind is, I really hope I get under somebody who's a good leader. And the assignments finally come down, and they come to you, and the person comes in and says, we got your perfect assignment. You're going to be working with the greatest leader in this country, the greatest leader this country has ever known you get super excited you think wow i'm going to be the right hand man to this person who's a great leader and he goes on to explain to you you are going to be the right hand man of adolf hitler okay now does that change your mind on what following someone who's a very good leader might look like now was adolf hitler a very good leader well yes he was he caused people around him to make to have decisions and to follow his his rules and but he did it in a very wrong way right he hate, he he was very sinful, and murdering people, and getting, wanting his own way. What do we get to with this story? Is this the idea that godly character in leaders is crucial? It's not just important that you are a leader, but in the way that you lead is a way that is glorifying to God and showing others that you're leading the character of God. It's not about yourself. It's not about getting the, the biggest following that you personally can have. That's a very selfish way to lead. That's not what we find in Jesus Christ, and that's not what we find for his leaders in the church. Godly character in leaders is crucial. Let's turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, I'm going to look at verses 10 through 20. Jesus is teaching in this passage, and he says this. It says, And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So we have this uh, interaction that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And he brings the crowd together, but part of that crowd is the Pharisees. They're leaders and rulers of the Jewish temple. And everybody at the time looked up to them as what it looked like to be a godly individual. But these godly individuals, they were offended by Jesus' teaching, saying um, that they were not happy with it. And what Jesus answered in verse 13, he answered them, Every heavenly father has not planted, will be rooted up. He said, Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees only cared about themselves. As much as they wanted to tout that they were followers of God and leaders of God, they only cared about keeping that authority structure where they were on the top and they could look their nose down at everybody else and say, You're not following our rules, you're not following what I think you should be doing. It was all about them. And it was trying to make them look good. And Jesus said, you know what they are? They're the blind leading the blind. They're blind guides. He uses this very quick, simple imagery picture in our mind. Can you imagine two people trying to figure out where to go, but both of them being blind? They don't know where they're walking. They don't know what pit they're going to fall in. They would walk right off this stage, right? They don't know where they're going. He, he talks about the highest religious leaders, the Pharisees at the time, being these blind guides because they're not following what God's word tells them is true and is right. Look at verse 15. And Peter, Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that we have to get to the heart motivations of what who people are. It's very easy for us to look squeaky clean and shiny, especially when we're coming to church on Sunday morning. We might put on our best clothes, we may come in, people ask how you're doing. You're not going to say I've had a horrible week. I've yelled at my kids multiple times. I've you know, sin in this way or that way, you're going to say, well, everything's going pretty good, right? But we know the heart is what causes all of those things to come out of us. And it's important when we're looking at leadership and those who are put in leadership structures that they really have a relationship with Jesus Christ that, that guides and directs them in every avenue of life. They're, they're saying, no, I want to follow God. I want to serve God. And as we serve God, we're trying to challenge other people to serve God the heart is what matters, and the heart is what defiles a person, not the outward actions. What, what your inward heart loves um, will come out in what you do, how you act, um, what you say. What are we getting to is that godly character in our leaders is crucial, not just that someone who is willing to be a leader, but that that person is a godly individual who wants to please God first. Turn over to First Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is teaching. And last year, we went through the whole book of 1 Timothy, uh, section by section. And he is teaching to the church that Timothy is in. And so he's talking to Timothy, who is a pastor, who is an elder. And as he's doing this, he gives uh, character qualities to look for in leaders. There's a longer section to First Timothy three one through thirteen. There's a lot in there, and last year when we went through it, we really divided that up and talked about it thoroughly. If you are wondering about that, I would suggest go onto our church website, look at that passage, that that audio recording that we have from First Timothy three. I am going to take a minute to read through it, and the reason we read through it is to see that God's purpose in a leader is not so much about the leadership of him. He needs to be a leader but the character qualities are what stick out the most. He says he doesn't give us so many uh, responsibilities as what a leader is supposed to do, except that he's supposed to follow God with every part of his body, every aspect of his life. And if he's a a guy that's growing in character, that's going to transfer into a good leader for God. Let me read it. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor— Or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil Now that ends the section on characteristics of a pastor of an overseer. We go on from there to, to verse eight through thirteen and it gives us this, the second uh, the second structure of a, 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 a of a group in the church, the deacons. We have two different Positions, the pastor and the deacon, and deacons also are, are, are held to character quality. Let's read it, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers. Be sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. We could divide those out and look at the specific character qualities, many that are mentioned there, but all of them pointing us to the fact that godly character is what should characterize a godly leader. Godly character is, is what makes a godly leader, okay? Not someone who just leads and bull- bulldozes his way through anything that he wants. He's doing it in a godly fashion, caring for people, loving people, but still leading people. Now, the question for us today is how do you match up? How do you match up to these godly character qualities that are mentioned? Would Do you find yourself that would be a good godly leader, whether it's a godly wife or a godly husband, Or a godly child that is trying to follow and serve after God? How do you match up with these godly characteristics that are just mentioned? Let me ask you a couple questions along these lines. Number one, how do you respond when things don't go your way? How do you respond when things don't go your way? Do you find yourself out of control? Do you find yourself using anger? Do you find yourself scheming or bullying or quarrelsome, or trying to do anything you can to get your way. That doesn't line up with God's character of a godly leader. Or do you find yourself gentle and patient, humble when you fail? That means I know that there's always going to be conflict, but when there is conflict, do I pray and ask God to help me be gentle, help me be understanding? And even with the things that they aren't going the way that I want around me, do I try to in that conversation and in that moment, love other people in a very specific way, gentle and kind. How about when you fail and you do blow it? Do you ever find yourself going back, resolving those issues, uh, taking on your part of it, your sin in it, and saying, I'm sorry, that was wrong of me, please forgive me. Those are important things. And, and, and godly leaders are not uh, exempt from doing those type of things. And as you do that with your family and as you do that in other relationships, you are growing in your leadership you know, and in your ability to be used by God in different ways because you're growing in those. How do you respond when things don't go your way? Another question, how would other people describe your character? Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm, I think I'm okay. I'm pretty good. I mean, I, I'm around people at work and they don't think I'm the worst person in the world. Well, Let me ask it this way. How would your wife describe your character? How would your kids describe your character? Or kids, how would your parents describe your character? Would some of the descriptions as, well, pushy and abrasive maybe be a characteristic of your wife or your spouse? Maybe a liar. Maybe selfish and greedy. You know, maybe there's a topic that you know your spouse has told you at some point, well, I know I can't talk to you about this, or I feel like i got to walk on eggshells when we talk about this thing. I've had that specifically told to me from my wife at some time, and it was a good godly thing for her to say to me because it helps me to to, to think through that and say, is it right for us to have specific topics that we can't talk about in in an open way without me letting my anger get the best of me or all of those type of things? Well, no, we should be able to talk in a godly way, even in tough situations. And then if we don't, we go back and we apologize and we ask for forgiveness. How would other people describe you? Now, last question for you What is your overall goal in life? What is your overall goal in life? Well, is it to excel and think, well, I got to excel? And I could start at a young age, I could be at sports, I want to be the best at what I'm at. At school, I want to be the best. I want to get the best job. That could transfer right into life, that my main goal is just to excel above everybody else around me and really have myself on top. Is that your main goal in life? Maybe it's to store up treasures for yourself. As the Bible says, that should not be our main purpose as a Christian, to get the more, the best things, and to look for the next great thing that we think is going to satisfy us. That can't be our goal. Is it to provide the good life for yourself and your family? Now, it's not a sin to enjoy what God has given to us throughout the world, but is that our main goal, to just enjoy the things that are around us? Is it to just enjoy what life has to offer, eat, drink, and be merry? As an Old Testament book reminds us that many people back then would say their main purpose was. Now, something is missing in those responses if you're a Christian. Our number one goal as a Christian should be to enjoy God, to glorify Him, and to please Him forever. And as we seek to do that over and over and through the days, through the weeks, through the years, guess what? We're going to be growing in godliness, and we're going to be growing in the ability for God to use us as a godly leader. And like I said, our first point today was that God needs godly leaders in our churches, in our homes. And it starts with you. It starts with you in your homes and in your relationships. God wants you to grow in your leadership so that he can use you. That brings us to our third truth about leadership for today. Truth number three, leaders who desire to serve are crucial. Leaders who desire to serve are crucial. It's important that we have leaders. It's important that those leaders grow in godliness. But here's the third one. Are you a godly leader? Who's not willing to serve. Maybe you're growing in godliness in your personal walk and in your relationships, but when the opportunity to serve comes up, you think to yourself, let's let someone else do it. I don't have time to take on another responsibility. That's, that's not something that I want to do. God says that in order for godly leaders to be put into places, they have to be willing to actually serve and say that it's an important thing for us to have godly leadership I think we would all say, that's important, that's good. But what if we had nobody who was a godly leader who was willing to serve? We might have godly individuals, but if they're not willing to step into leadership roles, we're left having very few ungodly leaders, and we need that. I want to turn to Mark 10, 35, and what I want to look at in this section is two different avenues of leadership. One that is a very selfish Self-focused idea of leadership, and then the second of one who is a servant leader. Mark ten thirty-five. Mark ten thirty-five. We get the brothers James and John. Uh, told their names to us a little earlier. The thun- sons of thunder. It says in verse thirty-five of Mark ten. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're talking to Jesus. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I was baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at the right or to my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. What is it? James and John, they come up to Jesus as they're traveling. And what's their main focus and purpose in this section? Well, it's about getting the highest spot. It's about themselves being above everybody else, and above being the above the other disciples, right? They're saying, when we, we come into glory, Jesus, can I be right next to you? Can I be the, the greatest, the highest, given the most authority? And Jesus says, you don't understand that that's not what godly leadership looks like. You know, that specific role has been given to who God has chose, but that's not what godly leadership looks like, wanting to be the best. Look at verse 41. It says this, the other ten disciples aren't any better than the two James and John as they're traveling. It says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and they said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Or even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gathers all the twelve disciples together and he says, you guys are thinking of it all wrong. It's not about being on top. It's about being a servant. Are you willing to serve the way that God, through Jesus, has become a servant to all of us by going to the cross? He's saying, look at my example. And my example is not to hold on to this power, this authority, if Jesus had that mindset, guess where we would be? We would be destined on our way to hell because we would have no Savior. But Jesus became a servant to all of us by coming to this earth, going to the cross, and serving us gently, humbly, lovingly. And that's what the second passage I want to go to is John 13, to 5. John 13, turn on over there. We see a drastic difference between James, John, and the other disciples and the person of Jesus. Jesus, in John 13, he is preparing to go to the cross. This is the night uh, before he is going to be murdered the very next day. He's having the last supper with the, his uh, disciples. And as he, as he does, John 13 explains the situation. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in, this, in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in his heart, the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, the creator of the world, the creator of you and me, he not only took on humanity, in this act of service, of showing his disciples the type of godly character they need to be a leader, he got down on his knees in front of them. He took off their sandals, which, no doubt, were dirty, disgusting from traveling. And he took off his outer garment, he he got down on his knees, And he gently and lovingly washed their feet. This is so much an act that is out of the ordinary that the disciples um, were taken back. And Peter himself says, Jesus, no way. No one of your authority, and and I know you're God. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, no, Peter. This is what it looks like to be a leader, a godly leader. To serve those well in a godly way. And Peter said, okay, not just that, then my whole body. And Jesus, You know the story. It goes back and forth, but the purpose of it is Jesus giving us an example of what it looks like to be a godly leader. Not that someone is abrasive and hard and gets his own way and turns to anger and all of these other things to get what he wants. No, his goal is to please God, to serve God, to grow like God, and to help challenge the other people that are around him to do the same thing. He says, follow me as I follow Christ the same way that Paul does. we need leaders like that. Leaders who deserve to serve are crucial for the church. Leaders who desire to serve are desperately needed in the church. This means men willing to take on leadership responsibilities, men willing to grow in leadership roles. Maybe you think, I I would love to be a godly leader, but I'm not there to 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 take that on yet, but I'd love to be able to grow in areas so I can be used just being willing is a part of that. Men willing to teach and learn to be teachers. Um, you know, we don't want just the women in the church to be teaching killed children. Like We want men to be able to say, that's an important job. And unfortunately, we feel like women and wives, a lot of times, are the instigators in their, 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 uh, their families to get to church, to, to be active in the church. Men, are you taking those responsibilities, those leadership roles? And again, that is not a, I'm going to pound on the other person and step over them. It's working with them together, but being a godly leader. Are you helping in getting the kids ready for Sunday morning to go to church? Are you saying, hey, we really need to, to get to church more? That is, that is a, an active role for leaders in their home, and men should be taking those on. We need men willing to teach and learn to be teachers. We need men willing to take initiative to lead their homes and churches. And as men start doing these things and start leading, we're going to have a more godly church, a more effective church, one that follows after God. And then here's the thing. As godly character is developed among the church, God is going to use that godly character of men and women in different responsibilities and roles. And the church is going to flourish It is going to, uh, it's very much an essential that we have leaders that are godly and willing to serve. We need to strive for godly character so we can be good, godly leaders. We want to follow after Christ and lead other people to Christ as we, as he puts us into those positions. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him being the good shepherd, the one that guides us. He doesn't forget about us. He calls us back when we sin, Lord. God, we thank you for that. Help us to grow in our godliness and grow in our ability to lead others uh, into godliness. Thank you for your words today uh, that challenge us. Help us, to take a, help us to take them with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.